Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Fallerbach. This is a long piece, uh, almost a documentary I'm going to do about bullies. And um, bullies are always the same. Bullies are, they have a pathology. Um, and I read a book called The Human Magnet Syndrome by Ross Rosenberg. Or you can watch the movie The Little Mermaid and, and look at the character of Ursula. Bullies are all the same. I work in a boxing gym, Ricky Lord's boxing gym, and I've never told this story on the podcast, but it's something that really bothered me that really amplified what a bully was. We were doing a round robin of sparring and we all had headgear and mouthpieces and it was like five guys, right? So I would take a turn sparring, then I would uh, referee, uh, and then I would take a round sparring and then I would referee and it was like five guys in a round robin. And there were these two other guys on the side. And I said, do you want to get in on the circuit? But it's kind of like you got to wait because it's like A, B, C, A, B, C. You know, you're like in, you're in the queue. And this one guy said, oh, no, I'm not really in shape uh, to spar. Okay, fine. But he watches. We're all having a good time. Uh, everyone goes around about three times. Everyone gets three three-minute rounds in. We're all starting to get really tired. Then this guy says, uh, okay, you know what? I'll spar that guy. And he picks the guy that's done the fourth round. Everyone got three, but he picks basically the most tired person. So then I, I jump in the ring and I'm going to referee. And he, he gets pissed. He goes, no, you don't need a referee. We're just going to do light sparring. And then I go, no, you need a referee. We all, haven't you watched this? Everyone gets a referee all the time. And the boxing gym loves people getting referees because number one, we make sure that you go light. We're all going 20% of power, not 100% of power, not 80, about 20. We're just working. We're moving. We're not beating each other up. We're practicing how to block and stuff in boxing. And he gets pissed. He goes, you know, to the bosses of the gym, I don't want a ref. I said, you don't need a ref. And I just, I'll just just count for time. I'll go two minutes left, one minute left. I'll just be in there for time. So he insists that I'm like outside the ring. The second I get outside the ring, he starts pulling on the guy's neck and doing like this rabbit punch shit, which is completely fucking illegal. So I hop in and then he's like, get, get out of here. Get out of here so I can cheat. I mean, it, it's unbearable to me that he was doing this. So he was in the gym yesterday and then these guys were sparring and I hopped in and I just, I started enforcing rules right in front of them. They didn't ask me to do it, but at the end they were like, yeah, thank you so much for doing this because I was showing them little techniques and stuff. Also um, at the end of the day, after that guy got his licks in and he pulled on necks and everything, the guys took me outside and they go, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I didn't want to spar that guy. I don't know that guy. And then he was doing everything he can to bend the rules. He waited till everyone was tired. Here's the thing about bullies, okay? The big secret of bullies. They're too insecure to have a moment not go their way, okay? It's all insecurity and social dominance. If you're insecure, you can't, ha you can't not do good in practice. In, in practice, <laughs> I got beat up a little bit. I beat the other people up. I'm practicing to see what strategy of blocking and moving works. It's not in competition. See, the bully 
mentality doesn't know the difference between in competition and sparring. They can't lose. They're too insecure to lose. They're too wounded as individuals. They didn't get enough hugs growing up and they can't lose. I'm happy to lose. I'm happy to look stupid. In comedy on stage, I play characters. I'll look as dumb as possible. And I've said this before. I was very much trained by Jim Norton. And when I would watch Jim Norton do stand-up, he did this whole bit about, you ever just take your gross man tits? You ever squeeze your man boobs? Oh, you're disgusting. You ever just scream it? I hate my body. How about spend that three hours on New Year's Eve? The only thing I could think to do was take a dildo, duct tape it between my awful tits and shoot myself in the head. But with my luck, the gun would misfire and the <laughs> duct tape would swing the dildo off my tits. It would, And I'd have to call my mom. Oh, mom, you know how dad died? This is Jim Norton making unbearable fun of himself. It's unbearable to watch, but it's so funny because like, when he makes fun of himself, then he looks at a politician and the crowd goes, oh, shit. He just talked about duct taping a dildo between his tits. You think he gives a fuck about Mitt Romney? Watch what happens. So that it creates a danger and it creates a, a rapport with the audience when you're not too insecure to make fun of yourself, Tony Hinchcliffe. I want to talk about bullies. There's another bully out there. His name is Simon Cowell. And the problem with bullies is they can't let other people's freak flag fly. Like Simon Cowell, if he's not in a sweater yelling at a restaurateur, like he's not like, these mushy peso awful, like Gordon Ramsay. He doesn't know how to exist in the world. If he's not bullying uh, service people, if his servants like don't bring him breakfast in bed, he's like, put different shoes on me. Simon Cowell's the worst person. He has, he has zero talent. So what he does is position himself in this pyramid scheme called America's Got Talent. And when someone weirdo comes in, he tries to take him down. Why? Because he's too insecure to be the weirdo. So he has to be the bully. Um, it's all insecurity. And then so he tries to take down this weirdo um, who taught everybody spiritual information. So I'm going to share my screen here. This is Simon Cowell being taught a lesson. What is your name? I am Freckled Zelda. Okay. I'm a music fairy. You're a music fairy. I'm a music fairy. Wow. Really? Indeed I am, Simon. So playing a character here, really? You're not a music fairy. Oof. You know, he's too, he can't, the devil can't understand what this is. Okay. And uh, where are you from? I'm from the Freckled Forest. Okay. Simon, have you noticed this crazy instrument around my no, neck? No, tell me about it. It's an ocarina. It's a very unique instrument. Not a lot of people know about it. Never heard of it. It looks like a heart. I'd say it's more in the shape of potato. Okay. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's also known as a sweet potato flute. Great. Well, you're interesting. Good luck. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> We're laughing at her. There's like this weirdo. She's going to <laughs> She sticks to her guns, no matter what. You can tell she's nervous as well. You think you want the one ever land you land on. The earth is cast and 
So this is from Pocahontas, but or I don't know, some Disney movie. But he he's just like he she's speaking against predator energy with spiritual information through this Disney song. So what she's saying is, you just cut down a rainforest. Have you met the bobcat? Do you know the I mean it's hippie stuff, but it's beautiful. Can you sing with all the voices of the That's awful. My mushy peas are terrible. They've gotten cold. Predator energy. She goes, you don't know anything. If an artist is budding and you cut them down while they're still blooming, you have a sapling sycamore and all you want to do is cut it down for short-term gain because you want to disqualify this artist from taking you off your ivory perch, Simon Cowell. And, and the, the instinct that someone would have to um, stop share, the instinct someone would have to you know, create a pyramid scheme where they all have to kiss your ring at the top to, to then get granted into your, into your graces. But you have to go through their filter. I don't go through anyone's filter. I, I have been doing comedy for 20 years. I'm done with filters. Uh, I've done an uh, audition at this one place and the, the people were like, how long have you been doing uh you know, managing clubs or whatever. They're like six years, two years, 10 years. Okay, I've been doing comedy for 20 years. I'm done with the predator energy. Now I said, you can um, read the book, The Human <laughs> Magnet Syndrome by Ross Rosenberg, or you can watch the movie, The Little Mermaid, because Ursula is a predator. And um, this is a little scene from... The Little Mermaid, this is Ursula helping out humanity. To help unfortunate merfolk like yourself. Look, I'm Simon Cowell, I'm Tony Hinchcliffe. I'm trying to help the young artists. I want to help them, come on. But poor unfortunate oh, merfolk like you, I want to help you. With no one else to turn to. I admit that in the past I've been a nasty. So this is uh, William Montgomery, and that's David Lucas. Uh, you know, Ursula has no power without sycophants kissing her ass all the time because she's so fucking insecure. They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch. Oh, I'm better now. I used to be a witch. I'm not that way anymore. But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways, repented through the night and made a switch. I've made a switch. I'm different now. <laughs> I'm different now, you know. <clears throat> the predator energy will always operate in the same way. They'll create a pyramid scheme that you have to climb and you have to, they're so wounded that they need to know that you're not going to hurt them. 
So on the way up, they need to put you through levels or they need to like a, a frat initiation. But this this is predator energy stuff. And this is just um, this one I just want to show you. This is Ursula um, eating breakfast. So I don't know. See if you uh, have any similarities between Simon Cowell or Tommy Hinchcliffe. In my we has to go crazy when I when I lived in the palace, Ursula got kicked out of the palace, you know, even even the ruling class was like, this bitch has got to go, you know, she, she, the problem with um, with with the oligarchy is they're all just a den of vipers um, jockeying for position. And so, you know, if you're only kind of sowing seeds of discontent. Um, you're not going to, you're going to get kicked out of the castle like poor Ursula did. Um, okay, here, here's what I want to say. I've met Tony Hinchcliffe a few times, uh, many times, and it's always been a terrible experience. The first time I met him, I did a roast battle against uh, Eric Wargo, and I had a terrible performance. This was my first go. And I brought props. I didn't know. So I was doing, I was running a roast battle in New Orleans out of the La Nui Theater at the time, which is now closed. But I was running a roast battle and sometimes you use props, you know, and it was just a different, try to be experimental in my comedy. And I had these, these jokes that I put on poster board poster boards and I wanted it to be very clear what my joke was. So I put, I printed everything out and I made these art project of my jokes to make it clear. I wanted these things to hit and the, it, it didn't work. It was just an awkward performance uh, between Eric Wargo and I. Eric Wargo is also a garbage person, a garbage performer, but that's a personal problem that I'll talk about in a different thing. He tried to take me down. Anyway, um, Tony Hinchcliffe stole a joke. He goes, Oh, looks like you're chairman of the board. And then he danced like this. It was the gayest thing I've ever seen. But I was like, where did I hear this? That joke is familiar to me. And I realized it was a very famous joke that Norm MacDonald did. Um, so I'm going to play that. This is the exact joke that Tony used on me during a roast battle. Is this movie coming out? Yes. Title undetermined at this point. Chairman of the board. Oh, all right. Do something with that, I, I got the board is spelled B-O-R-E-D. <laughs> that's, that's what Tony did. And then he said that joke and then he danced like that. The second time I met him, um, I was about to film my special and I was backstage at the comedy store and I sought out Tom Rhodes. And um, he was, I know that Tom Rhodes went bankrupt filling, uh, filming a stand-up special. And if you go back in the Highway Diary archive, it was around episode 300, I talked to him about this. Um, but Tony walks up like I'm not there and just goes, hi, Tom, I'm Tony. Because we're having an authentic conversation and he needed to harvest, it wasn't about him at that time, but he needed to make it about him because he was looked around the green room, oh, Who's this guy? He's talking to Tom. I, I, I see an authentic moment happening that doesn't involve me. Hi, just walk right up like a, a, he doesn't know I'm there. The third time I was in the green room, 
and uh, opening for, I think Klaus Schrupp Jr. I was with Klaus Schrupp Jr. and he was opening for Tripoli and then Tony did a guest spot and then Tony wakes up at uh, walk. He gets up and his skinny jeans were so tight that his um, car keys were ejected from his skinny jeans. And I saw this happening and I said, hey, uh, Tony, your keys fell out of your pocket. And he looked at me like this. Grabbed his keys, walked out without saying, oh, thank you. You know, a non-psychopath person would go, oh, thanks, bud. Appreciate that. Because I saved him a trip. He would have got all the way to his car, not known, and then walked all the way back. And I just saved him a trip. And he goes, because I called out a mistake. Predator energy, you can't make a mistake. You can't have a moment where you're not really cool or really badass. Um, Tony Hinchcliffe, he went on the uh, UFC podcast, and he's a badass. Fight a lot growing up? Were, were you fighting a lot? A ton. And on never anybody my size. Until I started wrestling in high school, that's when um, I finally got to see what it was like to go against somebody my size. It was always guys twice as big as me, sluggish and slow. I had a wild advantage because I would just get in close and fight. I was the only kid throwing elbows in 1990, I swear to God. And nobody else knew about it. They thought punches were the only thing, right? And so I would win fights against big giant guys like getting in tight and all just throwing a grazing elbow. They're like, what the hell was that? I'm faster than everybody. I'm tougher. I'm, and I would just throw a grazing elbow. These huge guys would get knocked out. This is David and Goliath programming. Um, and, uh, he also said, so the other point of interest that I'd like to highlight is Tony put out a special called one shot, uh, Netflix got it one shot. I have one shot for greatness. So he had one stand-up show and it came out and it got bad reviews. Like people were saying it was like a five out of 10. So he phoned to have it redacted. So it was redacted. Let me say this. You say what you want about Brendan Shop. Okay, Gringo Poppy came out. It got a 1.2 rating out of 10. Um, that bitch is still up there. Where's one shot? You can't get it. You can't get it. You redacted it. Uh, I put three specials on YouTube in 2020. Conspiracies and dick jokes, fart porn and beer halls. It's a medical device. They're up there. They weren't redacted. I stand joke for joke. I think that's as good as anything out there. Um, I want to say, so Tony is also, he's not an empty vessel of social climbing. He's not, he's a tough guy. And, uh, and you know, he can't, if you say you can beat him in wrestling, he'll wrestle you. And so this is just, um, Tony socially dominating his sycophant, um, David Lucas. Fun fact for those of you that don't know, David Lucas once decided to talk shit for many weeks in a row about out of nowhere for no reason. He's just <laughs> sitting there being a good boy in the green room and he keeps on, Tony, if we wrestled, I'd beat the shit out of you. And I kept saying, no, you wouldn't. And he's like, I'm a state qualifier from Georgia. And I go, yeah, but Georgia and Ohio are two right. different levels. That's the he's like, motherfucker, I have a 200-pound weight advantage on you. <laughs> and then Joe Rogan, I was fine. Everything was fine. And then Joe Rogan goes, Tony, you're fucking crazy. David Lucas would smash you in wrestling. I go, let's fucking go right fucking now. <laughs> and a fun fact, after a stand-up show, after everybody had left with only the staff here at Vulcan to witness it, on this very stage, 
I fucking beat the shit out of David Lucas. It's It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. I agree with that. I think it was very embarrassing. The whole story. The only thing I could have done to have Rogan respect me more, I did. Oh. Oh my God. There, that's it. There it is right there. I feel bad for Joe Rogan. And I'll tell you why. Because people have competitions who's a better friend with him. Imagine that. Imagine you're hanging out and he's like calculating as a social mathematician his, his standing with Rogan. And that's all he thinks about in his head all the time. The only thing I could have done for Rogan to respect me more, I did it. Click social map petition. I just went up in the social credit score of the Rogan club. Ugh. Can you imagine having these people around you? <laughs> you know, Tony, Tony said, I'm a better athlete than you. I said, I'm just fat. You're not a better athlete than me. <laughs> so first of all, we started with a push-up competition upstairs. And then I was... I that too. No, I don't think... we. So, so I won the push-up competition and I beach and wrestling let me just show you i mean i just want to go to this because the match was literally nothing i mean i, I have pride like i i, I want to go to stand-up shows and i want to perform at stand-up shows i have pride yeah. i wouldn't subject All myself right. let's watch the video right now you project <laughs> Wow, what a display. So he goes from head and arm choke to back mount, and then he declares victory. The only thing I could have done to have Joe Rogan respect me more, that's respect right there. He respects him. The only thing I could have done to have him respect me more, I did, and I accomplished the task of going up, click, social credit score, social domination. Social credibility. I'm a social mathematician. I'm an empty vessel of social climbing. At this point, I want to tell another story because you, you can douche me in a green room and whatever. You can steal Norm Macdonald's joke during a roast battle in the belly room, whatever. This is what my friend, one of my best friends is Kyle Smith, and he appears in my specials. And, and um, Kyle Smith and Punky Johnson are really good friends. Uh, Punky, when she came to New Orleans to do stand-up, I performed with her in Siberia, which is the Carnival Lounge. Now it's the Carnival Lounge, Siberia, but we would perform there, and I saw her around. I think she's from New Orleans, or Punky Johnson has New Orleans ties. So she is really good friends with Kyle Smith. So Kyle Smith, for a year, a year and a half, he moved to Los Angeles right before the pandemic. I want to say it was like 2018 to March 2020, somewhere around that time frame. He lives in Houston now. But he told me a story that he went in the green room and he was congratulating Punky Johnson because she just got on SNL. And she, or maybe she was working at the comedy store bar at the time and she was porn drinking or whatever. There's like this secret comedy store bar. Tony Hinchcliffe comes in the bar and goes, You, shoo, 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 shoo. And Kyle was like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to, you don't shoo me. You don't, like, Kyle's kind of hood. You don't really, like, shoo Kyle Smith from New Orleans out of a bar when he's talking to his friend. Tony thinks he can, his social status is such 
That's all he thinks about his social status. He doesn't think about really jokes or anything like that. Like someone's social status. I also, uh, and he, he thinks he can just shoo somebody up. You're dismissed. You've been dismissed. When him and Punk here are like really good friends. And then Kyle's like, I'm going to kill him. Punk is like, it's not worth it. I'll talk to you later. Don't worry about it. I'll talk to you later. Boy, does that leave an impression on people? Let me say this about the narcissist uh, predator energy. Um, is that you don't see people as people. You see people as pyramids. And uh, I treat everybody the same. I could give two dicks who is higher on the social hierarchy than me. I don't care. I like, and I, I guarantee this has hurt me in show business. This has hurt me because I don't kiss anyone's ass. If you're a cunt, you're a cunt and fuck you. Like if you go back in Highway Diary, episode 133, like Andrew Polk in New Orleans tried to socially terrorize me. When I would make a poster for a comedy show, he would get coked up and make a parody poster. Then I made, I put out a podcast and he put out this social media campaign that I was bullying a certain other comic when everything was consensual and he had nothing to do with the podcast I did. Like if he was in the room watching it, it was consensual, but he made this thing like I was bullying another comic, but it was insane. Uh, what took Andrew Polk down was cocaine. When you mix co narcissism with cocaine, it's like a nine month or two year spiral to the bottom and now he's done. But um, I think uh, Tony only has the malignant narcissism and the social climbing. Uh, so, and him having to kill Tony have success is, is keeping him together uh, mentally. But every villain has an origin story. Like every, if you watch Marvel movies, it's like the, the, this guy was bullied in high school and then he became a bully. And Tony Hinchcliffe went on the UFC podcast to talk about how he's a real tough guy and he's the only one throwing elbows to really big people. I would beat up everybody, but there's an origin story to the bully, his psychopathy. And I ended up with, you know, really, 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 only getting joy through making people laugh in school, kindergarten, first grade, and then started right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Really early because in kindergarten I had a massive head. I literally had the same size head that I have now, and it was you know I was short too. So like one third of my body was this head. It was like this, and then like a body, and then legs right here. And so everybody called me big head first grade through eighth grade when I was in kindergarten and that summer between kindergarten and first grade I was like when I come back next year I'm not going to be the one that's picked on I'm going to have a retort for every I'm not going to be the one that's picked on you guys shat on me in kindergarten first grade I'm coming back to get revenge buddy if anybody hits me with anything I'm going to have a response for them whether they're fat or tall or skinny or whatever um, and that's really where it started. I mean, and, and, it, and I got so much joy from the laughs that I would get. If I wasn't getting bullied, now I'm getting laughs. I'll never be the butt of a joke again. <laughs> I'll get laughs. Um, I just want to say that there's different cultures. Like I'm from Jersey, um, click clack. I mean, Tony Hinchcliffe is from Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, Bill Burr is from Massachusetts. We don't, we don't do the bully thing. 
in the Northeast. We don't do it. We see it for what it is. And um, so Bill Burr was on uh, Kill Tony back in the day. And uh, he had a, he wasn't kissing no ring. And um, Tony sees a social hierarchy. He doesn't see people. He sees this open micer as a potential victim. And Bill Burr is an ascended master that he literally can't say anything to. <laughs> yeah, but didn't you kind of fuck him with the music on the way up? And he's exposing their carny tricks on his way up. He was like, the music you gave him was not fair. Well, on what comedy show is it going to be uh, on your way up? And he doesn't yeah, cop I would have done it to the whole crowd. Instead of just saying, you would have done it because you guys made fun of him. Like, you would have made them all stand up and salute you. Yeah. I would pick one guy. Yeah. You know what he thinks. I don't know. Maybe not. I would pick one guy. I don't know. We shitting on him. I thought the work it didn't work. I'm going to be sitting here for an hour as these fledgling open micers get up and you're going to pick them apart and, and explain to them why they didn't kiss your ring good enough. That's what we're doing here. I'm not doing that. Nobody can be funny in one minute. You give people one minute. Who, who can get even get their stride going in that time? Oh, it happens a lot. Jesse just uh, took a real video. Fuck this. This is all bullshit. You did fine. Don't worry about it. No. No. how Tony is treating these up-and-coming comics. Bill loves the biodiversity that comes up on stage. Different comics bring something different to it. You know, how high can a sycamore grow? If you cut him down, you'll never know. I know that's a, this is spiritual information. This is pretty fucking mean. I'm not doing this for fucking, I'm to bring it up here. <laughs> I'm trying to uplift the room with comedy. I want to uplift it, and all you want to do is shit on people. I love it. Jesse, uh, you did so bad. One of our guests is about to quit. Tony pretends that Bill Burr, the ascended master, the knighted of the round table of comedy, on everyone's Mount Rushmore comedy, didn't just completely destroy what a negative, schwarmy cunt he is. So he, as the social mathematician, he doesn't say anything about Bill Burr. He goes back to squishing like a like eating a little shrimp. Goes back to squishing the little open mic. It's a negative mind. It's a negative mind. It's between the rain and sunshine. Little you schwarmy fucking cunt. And he just sits there like pretending like he's not talking to him. Like he's not talking to him. All right, that's the same clip as I played before. 
Um, I want to play this clip. This is from Fart Porn and Beer Hall. You watch so much porn at a certain point where you see the careers go up and down. You know? <laughs> it's always a sad day when your favorite porn star's asshole starts to go. Oh, sure. When you first see it on Pornhub, it's a nice, tight, chocolate starfish full of dreams. Big city dreams. I'm translating the bottle, but it's saying it. And when it farts, it's like a dog whistle. It's so tight, only dogs and like Catholic priests in the area because it's like a, it's a sickle. There's kids in the area. Uh, I posted that on YouTube, Fart Porn and Beer Halls, time code 12 minutes in, in August of 2020, uh, 2020, August, um, I, Klaus Schwab Jr. did the, <laughs> Klaus Schwab Jr. did the Kill Tony sh show right before he went on. Uh, David Lucas went on and said that. Very well, good. Bumper got some Michael anal beads on his wheel. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. I have a tight asshole. And they, they feel really good. Like, yeah. Well, when you fart, it sounds like a dog whistle. <laughs> you son of a bitch! <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> All right. Yeah, they let me fuck the other ones. <laughs> That's actually true. Uh, fun fact is that if I fart, it sounds like a dog whistle. <laughs> oh my God. He's I not that it. tight, David. <laughs> really? Where, right, man? What you trying to tell us, bro? Over there, that guy. So, hmm, that was weird. That was weird. Um, I lived in LA from 2017. Uh, August to September of 2018. I did that joke at the write-off room, uh, the Sycamore Tavern, which is the uh, the comedy dojo West. Um, I've done that joke. I've met David Lucas before. Um, here's a clip from David Lucas on Dr. Drew's Dr. Drew After Dark. Um, at first, he explained that he cannot read or write. And um, so here... I don't want to be uh, someone who shits on somebody's education level, but I think as a stand-up comedian, you should be able to read or write. Because when I write jokes, there's a chain of custody. I'm in a situation, I'm with friends or whatever, or I'm alone at my computer, I write the joke down. I have it on my computer. I know I wrote it. I go and perform it. There's a lot of guys that have no chain of custody because they go out seven nights a week and they spend zero nights a week reading or writing because they can't. If you can't write, you can't write. If you can't write, you can't write. So what do you do when you can't write? You listen, you watch, you absorb, you mime. You're a mimetic person. You're not a creator. You're a mimetic at this point. And look, we're all influenced by each other, comedians, but there's rules and you can't just take jokes. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you just can't. So um, this is uh, David Lucas on Dr. Drew After Dark. So um, 
the whole beginning of this podcast, David Lucas, like for the first, I don't know, seven minutes, did this bit how um, he, every time he gets a job, he gets to the job and then within two weeks, he slips and falls and then sues the job. So he'll get a job, slip and fall, sue, get a new job, slip and fall, sue. So that was his first 10 minutes. And then um, this is what happens. So, yeah. so actually, yeah. we're going to switch it up because yeah. I hear David uh, talking about how he professionally slips and falls. Oh, jobs, yeah. And we have a clip that's uh, actually very in tune with that same. Uh, okay. It's called talent. Dude Sues Every Job He Has Worked At, right? That's the clip? Yeah. That's that's the bit really? he did at the top of the show. And then David just goes, oh, really? Uh-oh. I've been exposed. The clip. Is this Charleston White? There it is. There it is. The chain of custody of this joke that he does on stage. Yep. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. What I do, I go on the job. I've sued singular before AT&T. I got $40,000 out of them in 2006, July 6, 2006, for race discrimination and sexual harassment. Quid pro pro sexual harassment. This nigga's packing jokes on the job. Well, how do you know this guy? Yeah. That's a pregnant pause right there. How do you know him? Oh, I don't know him. You say somebody else does it? Charles White? Oh. Same mindset. <laughs> is this where you got your ideas from? No, this, this just came out. Exactly. There it is. I rest my case. Look, if you can't read and write, you can't read and write. So what do you do? You mimetically um, steal. I'm sorry, but I'm sorry. In, in our line you can't do that <laughs> you can't do it so this guy just fucking ups and steal uh, it's just he watches something on tv and he goes well that's that's free game right wait how do you know this guy you don't know this guy we got the same mindset is this where you got your ideas from oh that's charles white there it is there it is and Again, the comics that go out seven nights a week and don't write are doing it wrong. Part of this game is social climbing, but the real part of the game is writing jokes, making albums, selling albums, doing shows, getting rid of all of your material, doing, building up to another album. Put out your album, erase everything. Build it up again, Make an album, erase everything. That's how you have to do it. If you don't ever put out an album, or if you put out an album, redact it, and then you perform every night, you're going to start stealing. Because no, look, no matter how good you are, it's going to take about a year or three years if you start from no material to getting an album. It, it just is. I'm very inspired by Ronnie Dangerfield, who did everything backward, but he still did it with integrity. And what he did, and I got this story from Joey Diaz, but I know this is true. What he did was he was selling vinyl siding. He was working at a car dealership. He was getting odd jobs. And in the midst of selling things, he would go, boy, I don't get no respect. My wife, hey, let me tell you. And he would just shit on his wife. And, and twice a day, he would get a good joke off it. Then he would go... He had stacks of notebooks. So he gets his first HBO, becomes a thing. He gets his first HBO special. Let's say that comes out May 1975. 
And they go, okay, we'll give you, so August of 1976, we'll give you a new one. He goes, no, let me, uh, how about October? And they're like, what? No, you just put out an album. You can't do another album in five months. And they go, it was all written. He had stacks of notebooks from 40 years of being a fucking salesman. All he had to do was memorize. It was wrote. Do you see what I'm saying? So he spent the first whole half of his life. He didn't get into comedy until he was like 45. From, from 18 to 45, he just wrote jokes. But then when it was go time in Hollywood, he had a stack like this. Original. All his. He's not stealing nothing from nobody. He, he was, as a salesman, as a sales tactic, he would come up with these things. I get no respect, bro. And it became his act. And it became, it was totally him, totally original. Um, you know, I put my stuff on YouTube. And then two years later, someone goes before me, David Lucas on Kilton, he just takes my jokes. He, he saw me do that at Sycamore. I'm, this is what happened. I'm not going to play cover for people because they have a higher social credit score in the industry. I could give a Frenchman's fuck about that. Look at Morgan Murphy. She got all her shits taken by Carlos Mencia. And you know what Carlos Mencia did? Never apologized, never admitted. Because again, it's always the same. You cannot, I, there's a kid in the boxing gym. He waited till everybody was tired. He started pulling up people's necks and uppercutting them. It's always the same. The psychopath cannot admit fault ever, ever. They just can't do it. So, um, you know, Carlos Mencia, when he got exposed, you know what he started doing? Drinking. He never drank before. He just started drinking. Another friend of mine in the, in the Houston Improv Green Room comes in. He's like, well, take, you know, Carlos is like, look, I'll take you on the road, anything you want. Cocaine, just piles of cocaine. So instead of admitting that he stole from Morgan Murphy, which, I mean, there's a very good clip. I'm not even going to play it. Everyone knows Carlos Mencia is a joke thief. He just is. And um, he, so he's like talking up my friend, like he's going to take him on the road. And he's just doing like a pile of coke, like Scarface in the Houston Improv Green Room. That's what happened. I don't care. I don't care anything. I just go, what's true? What is true? So I'd rather, you know, what I've been doing recently is taking my oars out of water and writing in my notebook and not going out to the clubs every night and having these people that can't read and write steal my shit. I'm not doing it. I'm not kissing nobody's ring who redacts their special. I'm not. Conspiracies and dick jokes is better than one shot. Period. And I'm nice to everybody I come into, except bullies. I'm very mean to Andrew Polk. He's a bully. I saw him destroy the New Orleans comedy scene for the time that he reigned it. You can make an argument he raised it up, but the second he got the power, he only cared about the power. He, he brought the ladder up with him. Those poor unfortunate souls. Hey, come on and do stand-up. Womp, womp. Play the womp, womp music. Womp, womp. As he's coming up, gives him a minute. Picks him apart. Ugh. I, I just, social mathematics is why I don't live in Los Angeles anymore. You'd be talking to anybody in, in a bar anywhere. Oh, uh, do you know this person? Name drop, name drop, name drop, name drop, name drop. It's disgusting. 
to so that their status has been secured because they have all these references, all these names. Ew. That that never, you know what uh Austin's about? Keep Austin weird. Let your freak flag fly. Be weirdo. Be a weirdo. You can be that here. Well, then click clack shows up and fucking one year. It's a, he creates a pyramid scheme of social climbing to kiss his ring. And he's a psychopath. This has been Highway Diary, episode whatever, documentary of fucking fuck Tony Hinchcliffe and this little sycophant class, David Lucas, who can't read or write. So he's a joke thief. I'll never talk shit on Hans Kim. He's a nice guy. Uh, bye, everybody.